It is to sing God's word and then to preach God's word and to listen to God's word. I've said this before. Um, a lot of times people identify the song part of the service as the worship service. But we know that that's only part of worshiping. And now we get to continue worshiping as we open God's word together and learn from the pages of scripture. Well, Micah mentioned today is a special day. It's a, it's a day that we celebrate. It's a day in history that is marked by what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday. And as we work our way through our time together in God's word this morning, we'll understand hopefully a little bit better why we call it Palm Sunday and what that means for us. I mean, we we know about the historic days of our faith. We know about Christmas when Jesus was born. It probably wasn't December 25th, but that's okay. We still celebrate the birth of our Savior, his entrance into humanity, into his creation for one solitary purpose, and that was to redeem mankind. We often forget that Jesus was born as a baby and, and he came not just to be part of his creation, but he came so that he could reconcile lost man to himself. Uh, one of the songs that we sing says that every step he took brought him closer to the cross. We're going to get ready to, or we're getting ready to celebrate Easter now, which is the resurrection of our Savior from the dead. But there couldn't be a resurrection if there wasn't a cross. A friend of mine uh, in South Africa used to tell me how much he disliked songs that focused uh, about the torture instrument, as he called it, that put Christ to death, and that's the cross. You know what? I love to sing about the cross, because it's the cross, that, that's the tool that God chose on which his son would die, on which his son would bear my sins and your sins and the sins of mankind so that we could be redeemed, we could be bought, brought back out of the slave market of sin and brought into a right relationship with him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He went to the cross for you and I. And we, we need to not just celebrate that at Easter, but we celebrate it all the time. In fact, sometimes people say, well, why do you worship on Sunday anyway? Well, because Sunday is the day Jesus rose from the dead, and we celebrate it every week. We celebrate it every Sunday. We are reminded that Jesus took my sins, my penalty, what I deserved. He certainly didn't deserve it. He took it so that I could be made right before a holy and a perfect God. So on this Sunday that we celebrate the triumphal entry of our Savior Jesus Christ, it was that day in the life of Jesus that he rode in on this colt, a never-before-ridden animal. He rode in on a colt to the chants and to the cries and to the shouts of, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those in the crowd were recognizing one important truth on that day. The, the truth they were recognizing is the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who came to fulfill all of those promises made in the Old Testament. All of the promises that talked about the, 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 the fact that Israel would 
have all of the land that was promised to them, that Israel would be a nation of peace, and that the one, uh, the chosen seed of God would rule from the throne of David, and there would be a time in Israel's history like none other. That millennial reign of Jesus Christ. He was the promised one, very much the Messiah, the one that others claimed to be, but had no proof to back up their claims. This one, Jesus, made those claims and had every proof to back them up. The one who would rule from his father David's throne. And these people were convinced of his Messiahship on that day. Now, as we work our way through our time in the scriptures this morning, we're going to see that they weren't quite as convinced as we are today because a few days after they were crying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what they were crying? Probably some of the very same people were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. As we think about this day in history, I want us to kind of put ourselves in the mindset of what was going on on that day. What was happening in history the week that Jesus was preparing to be crucified? Well, here's a few things that we know. We know that the world was under the control over the rule, the power of a country called Rome. Okay, Rome was a wicked country. Rome was characterized by its excesses, the things that it did uh, in excess And those excesses were certainly not anything that drew them closer to the one true God. In fact, they widened the separation gap between man and God. We also know that there was a guy by the name of Herod the Great who was king in Jerusalem. Now, you might think, oh, king, that must mean he's important. That must mean he's powerful. Well, not in Herod's case because Herod was simply a puppet of Caesar Augustus. Herod really didn't have a lot of power. You know, uh, it's kind of like the Queen of England today. When, when England makes important decisions, they don't go through the Queen. In fact, they seldom even consult her on major uh, topics that are of great importance. She's a figurehead, and that's really what Herod was. We also know that the nation of Israel was divided and had been divided for centuries. Israel, the northern kingdom, had been taken into captivity some 700 years prior to this day. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a bit longer, but was taken into captivity by Babylon nearly 500 years prior to this day that Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem on a colt and be proclaimed the king. Israel was far from their savior. Israel was far from the God who called them to be his people. And they were longing for freedom. They were waiting for someone to come and be their deliverer. On this day, they recognized that Jesus is the one who could deliver them. Before Jesus, the last prophet that spoke to the Jewish people was a prophet by the name of Malachi. Some 400 years before the arrival of Jesus in that manger bed was the last thing that Malachi talked about, Malachi prophesied. There had been 400 silent years where God did not declare new revelation to his people. 
Other than what they had already at their disposal, there was nothing new coming from God. We call those the silent years. Wow, 400 silent years. God did not intervene. God did not speak to his people. He did not communicate to his people. We know that the world at the time was a mess. It was in, a, it was in bad shape. Rome was by no means pointing people to God. At least the God of the scriptures. In fact, quite the opposite. Rome was promoting a culture of self. Self. I'm number one. Yeah, I need to be concerned about me. I don't care about you. It's all about me. That was what was going on in the nation of Rome. We also know that there was a movement among the Jews to gain their freedom at any cost. At any cost. This movement was called or labeled a movement of zealots. They were characterized by being forceful, by being aggressive agitators, so much so that they were considered by some to be the first terrorists, these zealots. They were best known for retaking Jerusalem from the Romans and forging a stand against them in a fortress called Masada. You may have read about that in history. You may have watched the movie Masada. It was true. They stood for the things of God to some degree, but they were also looking out for themselves. Jerusalem, at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, has been described by many as a pressure cooker or a powder keg. Things could explode at any moment. You know the old pressure cookers that used to have the seal on it and that little weight on the top of it, and when you would put it on the stove top, and it really made things very tender, very, very uh, nice to eat. But you had to, you know what, one thing you had to do, every time you used it, you had to check the seal. You had to make sure, because you didn't want to build up pressure and all of a sudden have the top blow off the pressure cooker. Now they have these new things called Instapots. They're uh, very similar to the old pressure cooker, but it all works electronically. We have one, we love it. But you see, a pressure cooker allows for things to build up and all that pressure building up and building up and building up. Even in the new pressure cooker, the new Instapot, you don't want to be, you don't want to have your hand over that valve when you, when you push it back because all of the pressure is released and it takes time. It's, just, it's pressure just could explode at any moment, a powder keg, if you will. The Jewish people had been oppressed beyond imagination and taxed beyond their ability to pay. Things were bad. That is what it was like on the day that the king entered Jerusalem. What do we learn from this historical information? In the days of Jesus, the world desperately needed a savior. That's what we learn. You know what? Things haven't changed a lot. The day in which we live, people desperately need a Savior. We know who that Savior is. We have that information. It's changed our lives. And so, what should we do with that information? We should communicate it. We should give it out to others that God brings across our path. As we think about that, let me share a prayer request from Cindy. She, we sent out a prayer request a couple of days ago about her cousin who has uh, 
been diagnosed and has taken a, a turn that nobody likes to talk about, it's going to be a, something that leads him to death. But you know what? Cindy's concerned for his health, but more importantly, she's concerned for his spiritual well-being. So as you think of Cindy throughout the course of the week, you can pray that she'll have the opportunity to share the good news with Ray and with Ray's brother, Roger. Two people that Cindy would love to see come to know Jesus as their Savior. Are there people that you're praying for? that God would give you the opportunity to share Jesus with, that would come to know Christ and be spared from an eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's the good news. That's what you and I should be doing today and every day God gives us the opportunity to communicate that wonderful news. I'd like you to take your copy of the scriptures and open them up to John's account of the triumphal entry. We'll start out in John chapter 12. We're going to be jumping around a little bit between the gospel accounts. How, how important is the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem? It's so important that every gospel, all four of them, record this account. So as we think about it, we're going to read the passage, but before we do that, let me remind you what happened the day before his triumphal entry. What was going on in Jesus' life? We know now what's going on in in Israel and in Jerusalem as a whole, but what was going on in Jesus' life? Well, he was in Bethany, the town where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. John reminded us that on that day, the day before his crucifixion, Jesus was loved for, Jesus was cared for, Jesus was honored in the house of the man whom he raised from the dead. And that's why they were celebrating him, because Jesus raised a man by the name of Lazarus from the dead. And and it was so important that Jesus hung out uh, miles away from Bethany prior to Lazarus' death. Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick, and he stayed away so that Lazarus would die. Hmm. Nice friend, huh? Well, there was a reason for that. The reason was so that others would see that Jesus has the power over life and death. And that Jesus could raise somebody from the dead. And he did. So Lazarus passed away, but Jesus came and he raised his friend from the dead. So as a result of that, they wanted to have this big celebration, this big feast. And I think that's one of the things that Baptists appreciate so much about our Jewish brethren. They know how to cook and they know how to eat. And we've brought that over into our Baptist uh, traditions. Okay, Jesus was being honored by a feast. We're going to honor Jesus with a feast next Sunday. And we're going to enjoy it. Now, all serious, let's, let's be serious though. Jesus was there and it was a tempestuous time in the life of Jesus. People were looking to kill him. Now, not only did they want to kill Jesus, but they also wanted to kill his friend Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Because as our text will tell us, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many Jews came to be a follower of Jesus Christ and follow the truth. So here they are in the home, actually the home of Simon. They're having this magnificent feast. And as they were feasting, probably towards the end of the meal, along comes Mary. Martha's in the kitchen. She's probably wondering where Mary is and why she isn't helping her. But Mary comes with this alabaster jar of perfume. 
She breaks open the jar and she pours the perfume onto the feet of Jesus. And then she begins to massage and rub and clean Jesus' feet and even using her hair to wipe the ointment off. John says, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. This perfume was no ordinary perfume. You know how they have imposter colognes and imposter perfumes today? This alabaster jar of nard was no imposter. You know how much it was worth? You say, of course, pastor, when we read the text, you'll, you'll read there that it was worth 300 denarii. But do you know how much that is? That's basically a year's salary. Figures today tell us that the cost of the perfume was between $30,000 and $50,000. She gave everything she had for love of her Savior. The alabaster jar was used for only special things. Things were put in that kind of a jar that were to be preserved for long periods of time. They they were supposed to be sealed up and not opened up. It was like an investment, if you will. Steve Green, in the 80s, sang a song that did a very good job of expressing the value of this spikenard, the, the, the attitude of Mary. The words go like this. One day... A plain village woman, driven by love for her Lord, recklessly poured out a valuable essence, disregarding the scorn. And once it was broken and spilled out, a fragrance filled all the room, like a prisoner released from his shackles, like a spirit set free from the tomb, broken and spilled out, just for love of you, Jesus, My most precious treasure lavished on thee, broken and spilled out and poured at your feet. In sweet abandon, let me be spilled out and used up for thee. As he continues to sing the song, Steve Green transitions from the act of worship and Mary's mindset to a plea to be used by God completely. It is a response to the action of God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, of His death on the cross. The song continues and it says this, Lord, You were God's precious treasure, His loved and His own perfect Son, sent here to show me the love of the Father. Just for love it was done. And though You were perfect and holy, You gave up Yourself willingly. You spared no expense for my pardon. You were used up and wasted for me. Broken and spilled out. Just for love of me, Jesus. God's most precious treasure lavished on me. Broken and spilled out and poured out at my feet. In sweet abandon, Lord, you were spilled out and used up for me. Hmm. Jesus did that for you and I. This kind of commitment is the kind of commitment we are called to in our service for Jesus. We should be committed to serve the Lord with everything that we have. 
When Judas objected to the anointing of Jesus, expressing that this month, this perfume could have been sold and given to the poor for 300 denarii, Jesus said, I love his response, let her alone. She's kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Another hint to his disciples of what would happen to him in just a few days. Verses 9 through 11 remind us of the crowd that is going to gather for the triumphal entry. The people that gathered to see Jesus and Lazarus would be among those who would cry out in hope that Jesus was their Messiah. Would you stand with me together as we read? We're going to read John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15, and then we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 through 15, and then Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 38. It'll all be on the screen, so you can look there as we read together about the triumphal entry of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. And then in Matthew 21, it says, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. The multitudes who went before and those who followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then He was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What a great account of Jesus walking or riding on this donkey into the city of Jerusalem. What a day it was in the life of Jesus. You may be seated. You think about that. What a day it was in the life of Jesus. Well, not really. Even though this was a legitimate offer of the kingdom to the nation of Israel, their acceptance of it was short-lived. Israel wanted the Messiah. They wanted desperately for Jesus as he was riding into Jerusalem on that colt to be the Messiah. They wanted Jesus to set up his kingdom on that day. That very day, they were ready for him to be their king. The problem is they wanted Jesus on their terms, not on God's terms. How do you know that, Pastor? 
How do you know that they wanted God on their terms? Well, as we said already, a few days later, some of the very same people were going to be part of a larger crowd and a more frenzied crowd who would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Now, you know who Barabbas was, right? He was a murderer. He was convicted of treason and murder and crimes against the state. And yet, when given the opportunity to choose Jesus or to choose Barabbas, the crowd chose Barabbas. You know, the name's not the same for what people choose, but today people are given the choice. Jesus or Satan's ways. And so often, like the Jews of that day chose Barabbas, when we share the good news, people choose something else. That doesn't mean we should quit. Jesus didn't quit. Jesus continued to press on. Jesus continued being the Son of God. Jesus continued loving the people. In fact, we read as he, as he rode into Jerusalem, his heart was moved with compassion. Why? Because the people of Jerusalem were like sheep without a shepherd. They were scattered. They had no hope. They had no one that they could turn to, at least in their own eyes. Jesus was there. Jesus was ready. God was willing. They certainly did not accept his offer. This is clear that Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, was ready to be the one that God sent for the very reason of reconciling and bringing peace to the nation of Israel. And he did bring peace, just a little different than what they were hoping for. So what do we learn from these accounts of Jesus' triumphal entry? I think there's three things that we learn from the crowds that were gathered on that day. Three things that we can incorporate into our lives. First of all, we see the need for action. There's a need for action. There's a cry. There's a call for action for the followers of Jesus Christ. Before entering into the city, Jesus told two of his disciples to go ahead into the city to get a colt for him to ride on. We find this detailed in the account from Luke. It's a strange part of the story where Jesus sends his disciples in. As we read it, it seems like Jesus is instructing the disciples to take the colt without permission. We might call that stealing the colt. Why would Jesus instruct them to do that? Well, Sometimes when we read that account, we forget or we don't think about the fact that Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. Jesus knows that those who own the colt would gladly give the colt for the purpose of the use of the Messiah. In fact, he said, if someone should ask you, why are you unloosing the colt? Tell them the master has need of it. And that's exactly what happened. The master, okay, the master needs it, please, by all means, take it. We want him to use it for whatever he needs it to be used for. The owners gladly gave their consent. But you know what? The disciples didn't know that. 
the disciples were asked by Jesus to do something that caused great risk for them. They were stepping out. They were doing something that could, in some people's minds, get them in trouble. Hmm. Has God ever asked you to do something that might get you in trouble? Now, think about this. God will never ask you to do anything contrary to his character or to his nature. But that doesn't mean he won't ask you to do something that might get you into trouble. Think about the apostles when they would preach the word of God and they would tell others. In fact, they were accused of turning the world upside down. What did that end up for them? Well, it ended up for them being imprisoned. All of the apostles, with the exception of John, were martyred for the cause of Christ. They got into trouble, at least from the world's point of view. But from God's point of view, they were simply being obedient to the call of God in their lives. God may command us to do things that will force us to trust him to accomplish what he asks us to do. When God calls us to do things, sometimes he calls us to things that stretch us, things that force us to trust him for wisdom and for strength. The disciples were called to action, and they obeyed that call. They did what Jesus told them to do. If the disciples had not been obedient on that day, if they had not done what Jesus told them to do, Where would be the colt for Jesus to ride on? Where would be the donkey that would be led before him like a king entering into his city? Where would be the cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Where would be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which reads like this. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, if that prophecy is not fulfilled, then Jesus is not the King of Kings. He is not the one who is to be the Messiah. Because the Messiah has to fulfill that prophecy. The disciples were obedient, allowing Christ to fulfill the very prophecies that were made about him, about riding into the city on a donkey. You see, you and I, we never know what God will do through our obedience But this one thing is certain. If we fail to obey, God cannot use us for his honor and his glory. God can only honor obedience. On this historic day, and historic is H-I-S, his story, Jesus used the obedience of his disciples in ways that God would use to teach his followers in the ages to come. The need for action and obedience God will honor and bless. God calls us to obey. God calls us to action. We must comply. We must do what God asks us to do. We see from the crowds that had gathered on that day, the need to adore. The need to adore. On that day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
The crowds worshipped him on that day. They believed that he was the Messiah. They saw his works, that they were the works of him who sent him, the works of the Father, the very works of God. These works that Jesus had done throughout his earthly ministry pointed mankind to the Messiah, pointed mankind to the Father. You remember when Jesus said, I must do the works of him who sent me. He wasn't doing his own works. He was doing the very works of the, of the Father who sent him. The worship of Jesus should not surprise us because we have need to worship. Mankind was created with a need to worship. In fact, for us not to worship is contrary to our very nature. Now, so often mankind has come up with something different to worship than the one true God. But we were created to worship. Jesus, the Son of God, is here on this day being worshipped by the people of Israel. What did the worship of Jesus look like on that day? Well, first of all, we see that it included personal sacrifice. In the account from the Gospel of Matthew, we read that the disciples put their clothes on the colt, acting, if you will, as a, excuse me, a makeshift saddle. The people who were in the crowds, they laid down their garments on the ground. Their coats, their cloaks were laid down. And you know what? These were probably among the best clothes that they had because they had come for a feast They'd come to start the celebration of the Passover. They were dressed up for the occasion. And yet when the Messiah was about to enter the city, they laid down their garments, their outer cloaks, on the street in front of the the donkey. Why? So that the Messiah's donkey, one that had never been ridden on before, would not touch the sin-cursed earth. Because they adored him on that day. They worshipped him on that day. They wanted to be his followers on that day. This idea of laying your clothes on the ground is a sign of homage and great respect. But again, unfortunately, that was not going to be long lived. That honor, that homage, and that respect. So it cost them a personal sacrifice We also see they practiced acts of submission. Not only did they place their clothes on the street, but they also cut down palm branches and placed them on the road that Jesus was riding on. John MacArthur makes the following observation, pretty insightful, I think. He says, as Jesus began to ride into the city on Monday, he believes that Palm Sunday was actually took place on Monday, not on Sunday. He has a good argument for that, but we're not going to get into that. As he rode into the city on Monday, most of the multitude spread their garments in the road. It was an ancient custom. You can go all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13 and see that it was practiced way back then. It was an ancient custom for citizens to throw their garments in the road for their monarch to ride over, symbolizing their respect for him and their submission to his authority. It was as if to say, We place ourselves at your feet, even to walk over if necessary. They had heard, if not seen, the miraculous, powerful, messianic acts 
of Jesus Christ. And they were willing to accept Jesus as the Messiah because they were hoping for him to deliver them from Rome. You see, they were willing to do acts of submission if they could get Jesus to be their Messiah. Well, what else did the worship of Jesus look like on that day? There was a recognition by those in the crowd as a need for salvation. They understood they needed to be saved. And you might say, well, isn't that a great thing, Pastor? Their cries, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is the highest. Hosanna to our Lord. The word Hosanna, you know what that means? The word Hosanna means save us now. So what they were saying to Jesus as he rode in to Jerusalem was save us now, Messiah. Save us now. We need to understand something about these people, though. And I hinted at it earlier. It's often been said that the same crowd that cried Hosanna would a few days later cry, crucify him. Another observation from MacArthur is, the crowd on that day was not interested in Jesus saving their souls, but only in his saving their nation. Not interested in saving their souls, but saving their nation. They thought he would manifest himself as the conqueror. The people wanted a conquering, reigning Messiah who would come in great military power to throw off the brutal yoke of Rome and establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness where God's chosen people, those people who were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, where God's chosen people would have special favor. But Jesus did not come to make war with Rome, but he came to make peace with God for men. Hmm. They kind of had their hopes dashed because Jesus didn't fit their mold. And, And let's just stop and think about that for a moment. Why didn't Jesus fit the mold of these people on this triumphal entry day. Well, they wanted a military leader. They wanted somebody who would come in on a white horse and who would drive the Romans out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. They wanted one who would take control of the world and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and rule on the throne of David. They wanted somebody who would give them special, uh, special privileges in the world. Now, all of those things were promised to them, so they're not bad things to have. But you know what? They missed part of the coming of the king. In fact, they missed the whole first part of it. They only got the part that made them feel good. Hmm. A feel-good gospel. That's what people want to hear today, isn't it? A feel-good gospel. Something that gives them rights and privileges. But the Jewish people missed the whole part of the suffering servant that had to come before the conquering king could come. You see, Isaiah talks so much about this suffering servant. The psalmist 
there's so many psalms about the suffering of our Savior before he was the conquering king. You see, they missed the whole first advent of Jesus Christ. They wanted to jump right to the second advent, to the conquering king on the white horse ruling from the throne of David. Skipping over the suffering servant dying on the cross to redeem lost mankind and to bring them back into a right relationship with God the Father. They forgot about that promise in Genesis chapter 3 where God said that the seed of woman would crush the head of Satan. But in that process, he would be bruised on his heel. They didn't want a bruised Messiah. They wanted a bullying Messiah, so to speak. They wanted a Messiah who would flex his muscle. Now, the crowd on that day knew who Jesus was. They knew he fit the profile of the Messiah. They were willing to accept him as the Messiah, but not willing to live the life of those who follow the Messiah. We have a term for that in Christianity today. We call it easy believism. There's a lot of people who want to have the privileges and the benefits of being a Christian, but they don't really want to live the life required of the Christian. That life is giving yourself up to the cause of Christ, letting the Lord be indeed the Lord of your life. That brings us to the next thought this morning. It was lacking in the crowd on that day. But you and I today can make a decision and we can be sure to make so that it's not lacking in our lives. What was lacking in the lives of those people on that Palm Sunday? Allegiance. For the follower of Christ, there is a cry for allegiance from God. There's a need for allegiance in our lives The crowd on that day did not know what would unfold over the next week. They would not know that it would end in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But we know his story. And his story tells us that Jesus went to the cross for mankind. And while Jesus hung on the cross, he took the sins of mankind upon himself. The plan of God was for his son to die so that man could be redeemed. The storyline begins in the Garden of Eden and it ends at the cross. The words that Jesus uttered, it is finished, was the proclamation of victory through Jesus on the cross of Calvary. We sang earlier about the greatest of all transactions and how it was the atoning work of our great God that brought us into a right relationship with him, made it possible for us to be rightly related to the Father. Because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, you and I can be reconciled to the Father. Mankind can be reconciled to the one true God. Because we are reconciled, we can be free from the bondage of sin and death. There's a song put out by Sovereign Grace Music, we're going to sing it as our closing song this morning, gives us a song that reminds us of the response to the work of Jesus on the cross. The bridge in that song says, "Thank Jesus, thank you, lover of my soul, 
I want to live for you. Lover of my soul. Who's the lover of my soul? There's no one who can love your soul but God. Lover of my soul. I want to live for you. Those of us who have come to understand the cry, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those of us who know what those words really mean, and it has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with the the, the man who would rule on the throne of David, but it has everything to do with the one who would reconcile us to a perfect and holy God. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. When you and I cry out to the Lord, save us. Save me, Lord. We understand that, yes, your blood has washed away my sin. Yes, the Father's wrath has been completely satisfied. Oh, to God be the glory. Thank you, Jesus, for satisfying God's wrath on my behalf. We also understand that we were once the enemy, but now we're seated at the table. Jesus Thank you. You see, the triumphal entry, as it's called, for Jesus, it was short-lived. But the lessons for us and the blessings carry on even till today. We, like the disciples that secured the colt for Jesus to ride on, we are reminded that we need to be obedient to the actions, to to the things that God calls us to do. We need to be obedient, even though it might seem odd, in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of those who are looking on, to be obedient. But you know what? Be obedient anyway. Even if it costs you, be obedient. And remember that our God will never ask you to do something that's wrong based on his definition of right and wrong. Like the crowd on that first triumphant entry, they worshiped. We also should worship. We enjoy worshiping our great God and our Savior. We gather together regularly to do that. We we gathered together this morning to worship our great God. We'll have another opportunity later on in the day to gather together and to worship. There are some sitting here this morning who would tell you, if you don't come back, you're going to miss out on something good. Something that will help us to learn more about how to live our lives the Christian way. We gather at other times throughout the week for the purpose of worshiping and adoring our great God. We've been called, we've been created to worship our great God. But you know what's different between our worship and the worship of those on that first Palm Sunday, if you will? The difference is that we can worship in spirit and in truth. They didn't worship in spirit and in truth. They worshiped in selfish hope. I hope that you don't come to church thinking about how you can gain something physically or materialistically. That's not what it's about. Oh, I hope you gain when you come to worship, but you gain because you've declared the worth of our great God. How amazing, how magnificent, yes, how awesome he is. We worship the way Jesus instructed that Samaritan woman at the well to worship. Those who worship must worship in spirit 
and in truth. And lastly, we see the need to pledge allegiance and live fiercely to our God, to be loyal to our great God and to our Savior, to strive to be what he wants us to be, to strive to live for him and to do all that he calls us to do. You and I, we want to be allegiant to our Savior. You know, we pledge allegiance to the flag, and I don't have any problem with that. I think it's a good thing to, be, to pledge allegiance, but when was the last time you pledged allegiance to God? We can do it in prayer. We can do it regularly. You know, we, we pledge allegiance to the flag. I don't know if kids still do it in school or not, but we used to do it every day, Monday through Friday. You get in the classroom, and one of the first things you do when, when you hear over the loudspeaker the, name, the, the principal comes on, and what do they do? They, they, they lead you in the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't know if they still do that today. But you know what? We should pledge that allegiance to our great God and, and, and commit ourselves to be what he wants us to be and to serve for him and to obey his word as we read it and as we study it. We want to understand the importance of being active for our Savior, of adoring our Savior and pledging allegiance to the one true God. So as we close our service this morning, maybe you want to, in your heart and in your mind, pray to God and pledge your allegiance to the one true God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We thank you for the privilege of joining together and worshiping you, adoring you in our hearts And in our minds this morning, we are crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When we stop and think about your coming in the name of the Lord, we understand what that was about. You didn't come at that time to set up a powerful kingdom. You came at that time as the suffering servant. You came at that time to go to the cross to defeat Satan, to end the bondage of sin and the slavery to to Satan. You came to provide reconciliation for lost mankind to your Father in heaven. So Father, we want to adore you. We want to glorify you. We want to pay homage to you. We want to honor you. And the way we do that is by pledging allegiance to you, by striving, by being committed to living for you. As the song we're about to sing says, I'll live for you, help us to make that more of a prayer than just a song. Help us to indeed be committed to living for our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.